The stalemate or irresponsible government inaction over immigration reform since 1986, that's the last time it succeeded, has produced a number of unintended consequences. First among them are millions of people who crossed the border when they were babies who are adults or nearly so and who have only known life in the United States. With an undocumented immigrant population of more than 11 million people right now, any attempt to relocate them becomes a gigantic operation. As part of the deportation process which ramped up under President Obama and which President Trump plans to accelerate even more, a shadow prison system for detainees has also grown up. We're going to profile this system this week. People who are picked up by Immigration and Customs Enforcement can wait months, even years in these facilities, often without legal representation or connection to the outside world. On any given day, approximately 34,000 people are held in federally and privately run ICE facilities. Before we hear some harrowing stories of conditions in these facilities later this week, listen to the bizarre tale of how the immigration detention system was born innocently in the mid-20th century, but has become a behemoth, warehousing tens of thousands where the rules are fuzzy and rights can, in practice, be non-existent. Jackie Stevens is professor and the director of Northwestern University's Deportation Research Clinic. There was no formal detention system to speak of between 1915 and 1984. During that time frame, for the most part, people were held rather informally for short periods of time. And depending on when you're, we're talking about during that time frame, um, if it was before 1981, there really wouldn't be any detention to speak of. Um, you would just be, you know, if you were ordered removed, released on your own recognizance and either deport yourself or um, remain in the country without legal authorization. After the private prison started entering the picture in the 1980s, then you would be in a situation that is pretty similar to what people find themselves in today. What changed uh, legislatively and then uh, the big change that happened in the 90s? So in the 1940s, because of the absence of any kind of you know, institutions for holding people who are in removal proceedings, Congress held hearings in order to decide whether they would give then Immigration and Naturalization Service the authority to hold people. And it was very interesting because a number of civil rights and religious organizations testified during those hearings, and they expressed absolute feelings of, of being appalled that the United States Congress would even consider um, holding people you know, for no reason other than their immigration status. Um, remember, this is during World War II or in its recent aftermath. And the thought that we would um, be giving the kind of authority that actually ICE now has was something that just was repellent and um, didn't pass. And it wasn't until, you know, again, 1952 um, that then INS first had authority to hold people, and they were so um, unenthusiastic about that that in 1954, they abandoned that authority. And it wasn't until after the arrival of the Haitians and um, the Cubans in 1980 that there was a revisiting of that policy and Congress held some hearings and, you know, actually the first uh, private prison contract by CCA was with INS in 1984. ICE, of course, is a product of the consolidation of a lot of government agencies into the Department of Homeland Security. Um, is ICE fundamentally different than the INS? And did ICE begin to do very different things 
uh, as it looked at detention and uh, the state of immigrants who are who are caught either with the improper papers or have committed crimes? Well, as you, I think, were alluding to, and there was a 1996 law that was passed that increased the um, number of people who would be eligible for deportation, and that was really the turning point in terms of the, you know, the legal basis for people being deported. Um, the numbers jumped from, you know, from 55,000 in 1996 to, you know, over 400,000, and then 425,000 in um, under the Obama administration. You know, there was that law that was passed under then INS. ICE is formed as an agency that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement, emerges as an agency of the Department of Homeland Security, which comes into play in 2003. And, and there wasn't you know, any change per se in terms of the operations of the ICE agents. Many of them had come from INS. What really changed in that time frame were the laws and the regulations um, from the 1990s and the early 2000s that you know, started snaring more people as unauthorized in the United States. As this began to scale up, what were the difficulties and what kinds of facilities were were uh, commandeered, I guess, to uh, house the growing population. Right. So, you know, Congress, under the intense lobbying of the private prison industry in the mid-2000s, started questioning whether one of the reasons um, more people weren't being deported was the lack of facility to to house people. There was no evidence that that was the case. Um, However, in 2010, Congress passed a law um, that required the mandatory detention of no fewer than 34,000 people each night for people who were um, detained under immigration laws. I mean, would that mean that if at five o'clock in the evening, ICE determines that there are fewer than that quota, do they have to go round up a couple thousand people? Um, I mean, that would be one fair inference. Um, I mean, presumably the bureaucracy is set up so that they don't have to wait until five o'clock in the evening. um, But the agents, and we know this from documents that are released, are individually incentivized and um, rewarded based on the number of uh, deportation orders they issue. Now, what does that mean for an immigrant who is detained? What what kind of experience are they going to have? And let's distinguish between people who are held for having problems with their papers and people who are actually held for being arrested for criminal violations. So um, nobody who is in custody under immigration laws is there for punishment. You know, the, the goal of detaining people who are immigrants was laid out in 1915, and it was to provide some kind of hospitable environment for people who were being queried by the United States for the purpose of the benefit of the United States being to able to regulate its own borders. However, even though that is you know, still the law, um, in practice, the facilities that are holding people for civil detention are literally prisons and they're run by the prison industry. The people who started the Correctional Corporation of America, and again, you know, the first contract was with INS, came out of the correction industry, the prison industry. And so for no good legal reason, um, those institutions look exactly like prisons. And the experience, if you are there because you, you know, murdered somebody and then after you served your punishment in a criminal facility, you were transferred to an ICE facility. And the experience, if you're there because you didn't have your driver's license and you were pulled over, is exactly the same. The people are held in exactly the same facilities regardless of their criminal backgrounds. 
Are there Miranda rights for people who are picked up for deportation? Do they have their rights read to them? Do they have the opportunity to make a phone call to get a lawyer? Do they have the opportunity for a speedy detention hearing? And, And if not, they have to be released, these kinds of things. Right. So the crucial word that you used here is opportunity as opposed to right. So for some of the items that you mentioned, there are good reasons to believe that they have these rights, including not to provide um, information that is incriminating. However, in practice, all of the possibilities that you mentioned are deprived to people who encounter law enforcement agents under immigration laws. So you don't have a right to an attorney if you cannot afford one. You do have a right to appear before some kind of judicial um, review in order to have the conditions of your arrest um, ascertained and make sure that you're there as the person identified in the arrest warrant and so forth. Based on my research from data made available from the government, it appears that most people are held for less than a month, but people can be held for seven years. And many of the cases in which people claim, you know, a legal right to remain in the the United States are from people who are long-term legal residents, and they can't fathom being removed to a country in Africa where they haven't been since they were an infant. And so they will remain for years in ICE custody trying to fight those removal orders. And uh, what kind of treatment uh, will they get in those facilities? Is there uh, standardization? Is it uniform across the country? And are, are there resources available to make it a different experience than prison? It's often a worse experience than prison because, as I was mentioning, the legal infrastructure for this is designed for people who are going to be there for a short term. So there's no educational programs. There's no training programs. Um, you asked about the uniformity. Within the private prisons, there is a lot of uniformity. So if you go to a geo facility in Adelanto, it's going to be pretty similar to one in Aurora, and that's going to be pretty similar to one run by um, CCA or now Core Civic in um, Stewart, Georgia. Um, There is variation depending on the local jails that subcontract and rent space out to ICE. And so, um, you know, your experience if you're in Arizona in a local jail there might be different from if you're in a local jail in Chicago. But you know, again, you can tell from the um, nomenclature that you're in jail or you're in a private prison. And um, that's not consistent with the intent of civil detention. Jackie Stevens is a professor and the director of Northwestern University's Deportation Research Clinic. Thanks so much, Jackie. Thank you.